Hello, I'm Sarah Day, Policy and Research Manager at HFMA, and you're listening to HFMA Talk, the podcast for NHS finance. My third conversation with Sanjay Agrawal took place just after he had finished four days working in intensive care at University Hospitals of Leicester NHS Trust. Sanjay is a consultant in respiratory medicine and describes his experience of working in ICU under such different circumstances to normal. Hello, Sanjay. Thanks for joining us once again. Thank you. Nice to uh, be able to give you an update. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, as as we discussed last week, we have a few questions for you today from people who've listened to your previous podcasts. But first, could you update us on where you are as an organisation and what's been happening for you since we last spoke? Yeah, so it's been a week since we last spoke. Um, and so we're now, uh, the date today I think is the 7th of April, as uh, as we've all I think discussed before every day seems like a year at the moment but it is the 7th of April and I thought that um, I would describe uh, this past weekend actually because I was on the ITU Friday to Monday today's Tuesday um, and I thought that it would it would give uh, people a flavour of what it's like because the first two podcasts um, I think the first week I was talking about training the second week about my respiratory outpatient work, but I think this this week it's it'd be good to take you through the ITU. So um, I started on Friday morning, um, and I have to say I did feel um, apprehensive in so much as this was the first time I'd looked after the intensive care unit where it was full of patients um, who had uh, COVID-19. Um, and I suppose the reason... Uh, I was apprehensive was because um, there are now uh, obviously a lot of people involved so whereas normally we would start our morning ward round with let's say anywhere between six and eight doctors um, we now have about 16 people double the number um, for our morning handover now for those of you um, who aren't quite sure what that is so uh, every morning on intensive care we have a handover at eight o'clock in the morning whereby we, the night team, tell us about the patients uh, from the night before and um, and then we pick up uh, that information um, and then we go on to do our morning ward round. The handover normally lasts uh, about half an hour um, and if you're coming on for the first time, as I was, I'd not been on for a few days, um, you sort of learn about the patients and their background and um, what to expect. So... Um, I would say the difference this time, obviously I've done intensive care for a long time, but the difference this time was that it was a whole new scenario. You know, I'd never looked after an intensive care unit full of uh, COVID patients and um, it is a new disease. And I'll get into that a little bit more. Um, And I suppose the other thing is I was aware that I was the coordinating, the lead consultant for this weekend. And so I needed to have a good handle on everything patient-wise but also because it was a big team there were a lot of new faces if I was apprehensive a lot of other people would probably like this to be even more so and I needed to um, if you like be reassuring and calm for them Um, in terms of our layout now we've obviously expanded um, and so whereas previously we had one big intensive care unit with uh, three bays uh, we've now extended into theatre recovery um, with elective surgery having been largely 
uh, completely gone pretty much um, and uh, by Monday we were also um, had opened into the paediatric intensive care unit so there's now quite a, you know much bigger footprint um, to look after so anyway back to Friday morning um, we had our um, handover um, at the end of handover we now assign roles which is not something we needed to do in the past but the specific role is to have a team of uh, three people who can go to the wards uh, and bring up patients who need to be uh, intubated and put on a ventilator. So we identified those roles and, and who was going to be doing that. And then we split up into uh, smaller teams um, and go into the individual bays where patients are cohorted. Now, these bays have actually been completely walled off, so they're completely isolated um, so that uh, people have to um, get into uh, PPE to go in um, and then they have to um, obviously take that stuff off. It's called doffing um, before they come out. So and these bays are, are completely, as I say, walled off. So we had um, three or four different areas where people had to uh, doff and don and go into those bays. So we split up into smaller teams of three or four doctors to go into these areas. Now, um, doing our morning ward round, we, we go um, around each of the patients, um, assess you know what's been going on with them, um, whether they're getting better or worse, what things we can do to improve, hopefully um, their, their, their progress and to take them forward. Um, and and so that's what we do. Um, with this particular condition, we're also doing something called uh, proning, which is where we turn patients onto their tummies because um, they seem to ventilate um, their lungs better. And that way we don't have to ventilate them quite as hard or quite with quite as much oxygen, uh, which then causes less long-term damage to the lungs. So a new thing that we're having to do on our ward rounds is to turn patients onto their uh, tummies um, or if they've already been on their tummies for um, 12, 16 hours we then turn them back onto their back. This this uh, might sound simple but it actually takes about five or six members of staff to do and it's um, uh, a procedure that can lead to risk where people become disconnected from a ventilator um, uh, or their tubes become dislodged. Uh, and so we have to be very careful with how that is um, all done. Just to mention, before we go into these areas, as I said, we all have to get into personal protective gear. And um, I would say that if you can imagine uh, being in a hot country and having a complete set of clothes on, and then you put a second set of complete clothes on with um, a scarf, a hat and goggles, that's what it's like. And your skin can't breathe and it is extremely hot and it's very difficult to hear somebody who's talking to you, who's standing right next to you. Mm. So everybody in these bays with uh, patients is like that. I, I liken it to essentially, I don't know, being on the moon or some kind of barren area like that with um, a uh, an astronaut, a space suit, because that's what it feels like. And I have to say the real heroes in all of this are the intensive care nurses because they're doing 12-hour shifts and they only have two half-hour breaks. Wow. Um, and so they're absolutely cooking um, for that period of time. 
Um, and, and I just don't know how they do it. As a doctor, I might be in there for three you know, three hours at a time, maybe for my morning ward round and then afternoon ward round, but they are there all day. And um, if we had the luxury of thousands of extra nurses, um, then then maybe their shifts could be shorter. But we don't, of course, because some of the ITU staff are sick. Um, and also because we've had to draft in nurses from other areas, they're actually, as well as looking after patients, they're training new staff who may have no experience of intensive care, who are really frightened themselves um, and so these ITU nurses are having to kind of manage all of us, being absolutely baking hot, looking after really sick patients and teaching other people. So, um, you know, hats off to all the ITU nurses around the country. So anyway, we do our ward round um, in the morning. We, 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 we turn patients, we um, do any of the jobs that might need doing, such as putting in new vascular lines, uh, writing a prescription charts, etc. And just to say, going into these bays, nothing things can go in, but nothing can come out. So we can't bring pieces of paper out. You know, it's all everything that comes out is is binned. Um, so remembering patient details, you know, what drugs they're on, what their blood work is, um, you know, a myriad of information as much as possible. We have to try and remember it or remember trends. So that when we do our post ward round handover, we can tell the rest of the team about that patient. Um, the next thing I'd say is, from a medical standpoint, is that um, this is a new disease, um, and so it is unlike other patients that I've looked after for the last, you know, almost thirty years now, who have pneumonia. Um, it's it's very different. The way we're managing him is different, and even though we've got information from China or Italy or Spain and other places. It's a bit like driving. Somebody can tell you how to drive, um, but until you actually get behind the wheel and, and use the pedals and turn and, you know, go on a motor, you, you don't know. And so I would say I'd heard a lot and learned a lot before um, I did this weekend, but, it, it, you know, I did a lot of learning on the job this weekend yeah. uh, about how patients respond to one thing or another. Um, so it was, it was very interesting. And, and I would say that... Um, for me, I found um, that, um, unfortunately, patients uh, only get better very, very slowly. So compared to our normal ITU population of patients that we had in our intensive care unit, our unit was potentially, it was, um, it was sorry, was mainly post-cardiac surgical, but with some medical patients, you know, you pretty much knew how people were going to, get better the speed at which they were going to get better um whereas with this condition it's pretty uniform everybody if they get better gets better very slowly so you have to be very patient um you often take um one step forward and three steps back um so there's a lot of patience that is required um and in in some ways it can be disappointing uh, stroke frustrating um, about the uh, the speed at which uh, change occurs. Um, the other thing to say is that each of these bays, um, as I've said, is very hot. We had one recording um, of a temperature, the ambient temperature being 36 degrees 
wow. in one of the bays and they're all negative pressure they were made negative pressure when the walls went up and we changed our ventilation but at the time I don't think anybody realised just how hot it was going to be and there's not a separate thermostat you can't open the windows and so it's um, very hot uh, but the patients are very hot too so with this condition people have very high temperatures and to cool them is quite difficult um, using um, things like cold towels and ice packs. There are machines, uh, there's something called the Arctic Sun, for instance, that we use, but of course in the past we only ever had one of those because we would you know, not need to use it very often. But now all of our patients um, are really, really hot and we need to cool them because they deteriorate when they have temperatures that high. Um, and so one of our key uh, requirements this week is going to be to try and procure... Uh, these machines that can cool people effectively because cold packs and cold towels just don't do uh, the job. So um, so we do our wall down in the morning and then we hand over. So all the, you know, there are different people in different bays. Um, and so we all come together uh, late morning and we exchange information about all the patients. So again, you know, the all the doctors and the nurse in charge come together. We talk about which patients um, need to come into the unit from the ward because by now we'll have also had two or three referrals from the ward or from our other hospital in the trust the um, royal infirmary so for instance on sunday we took two pa- uh, two patients directly from the emergency department from another hospital in leicester because they had no more room in their intensive care unit so we had to facilitate the transfer of those two patients which require staff members to leave our intensive care unit to go and pick them up um, which again is a problem um, so uh, we have our post morning uh, post ward uh, sorry ward round uh, post day ward round uh, about 12 o'clock um, and then we get on with additional jobs so one of the things that we've uh, had to get used to doing is because patients relatives are not allowed in the intensive care unit or in fact in the hospital Uh, we now phone each uh, patient next of kin, um, usually in the afternoon, uh, to give them an update. And of course, it's it's awful uh, for these relatives. You know, most of our patients are between, you know, 40 and say mid 60s. Um, So they're all sort of that age and they may have young families. Um, um, And so we call their next of kin um, and give them an update. And of course, Many of these, you know, partners, wives, husbands haven't even seen their um, their partner in the hospital. They know that they're on a life support machine um, and they know things are going to be, things are pretty serious uh, and that and the, the, the patient, you know, may not survive. So it's, it's, it's really hard for relatives to hear all this and, of course, not be there to hold um, the hand or be with that person who's sick. Um you have to give, you know, hope and reassurance, but it can't be false hope and all false reassurance. So it has to be a measured conversation. Um, and, and I feel incredibly sorry for all of the husbands and wives and mums and kids of these patients because they, you know, they just can't see them and they're not going to be able to see them for probably weeks and weeks. Um, so they're in a very difficult position. Um so uh, that's patient relative. Now, the patients themselves are um, all on ventilators and kept asleep, um, so they don't really know what's going on at all. We've had one or two patients who've 
uh, improve to a point where they um, are not are no longer kept asleep and they can um, see and hear and and look around and see the activity. And I would imagine for them it's quite frightening too because you have all of these doctors and nurses dressed up and you know the only thing you can see is their eyes. Um, so I would imagine there's a sense of, of you know being scared for the patients um, when they're woken up, which again isn't isn't great and it's it's very difficult to reassure them when you can hardly hear them and they can hardly hear you. So so difficult for them, difficult for their relatives, I would say. Uh, so that's what we do in the afternoon. And then uh, usually by mid-afternoon, uh, we then do our afternoon ward round. So we then get back into the uh, PPE and go back in and see how the patients have done over the last three or four hours uh, and then make any further adjustments. Again, some people may need to be turned onto their front or onto their backs. Uh, and that, as I say, requires a lot of people to do. So the afternoon ward round is again another uh, two to three hours uh, and then again we touch base uh, and usually by that time uh, we've got other admissions that may need to come in from the ward. Uh, We are doing uh, emergency um, non-COVID related work so people for instance who need coronary artery bypass graft and can't go home without one because uh, otherwise, um, they would succumb to their heart disease. Uh, we're doing one or two cancer surgeries, um, uh, aneurysm, uh, aortic aneurysm, that sort of thing. Um, so, again, we have one or two of those patients in side rooms kept away from the uh, COVID patients uh, that also need to be uh, looked after. <clears throat> um, so by about eight o'clock, um, the night team come back on. And again, we have another a big um, handover. Uh, the night team is slightly smaller in size than the day team in terms of number of people. Um, even though really this is a 24-7 uh, disease because we've always had fewer people at night and always had fewer people at weekends. That still is the case, although I have to say this weekend I kind of thought that we needed to alter this going forward because, you know, some nights are really busy. So, uh, this weekend on, on Sunday, for instance, we had um, five, I think, admissions over the 24-hour period. And it was a real stretch uh, based on um, patients being in all different parts of the intensive care unit in different areas like recovery, um, as well as having patients on the ward, as well as having patients coming from another hospital in the ED, and also some patients um, uh, being referred for ECMO. So we were really stretched with, with senior um, consultants this weekend um, and next weekend's a bank holiday weekend and I think we, we absolutely need to make sure that we have more hands on deck because I think for uh, my trust in this part of the country in the Midlands um, I think our projected peak is going to be um, in this next uh, week or two. So I think that's uh, something about the medical side of things. As I say, the nurses are the, are the real heroes. Um, the the um, cross-skilling and staff from other areas have started to filter in uh, this weekend, and I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for them joining us. I have to say, our trust, I don't know how our trust compares to other trusts, it's felt a little bit slow at times in terms of getting staff from other areas that are no longer doing their elective work, um, coming through to support. But um, I, I realise there must be big logistical um, issues around 
identifying those staff um, and training them and then getting to, to a point where they can be um, of help. Um, and, and for those individuals, it must be quite scary doing something you've never done before. Mm. Uh, but I think this is going to be the way for the next um, few weeks. And, uh, and so across the country, I would imagine everybody's grappling with this. And it, it is something, though, that has to be done because the people like our ITU nurses, for instance, uh, it's not sustainable uh, for them to carry on in the roles, even if they are seeing, even if they are overseeing the care of, you know, four patients rather than just one patient, uh, they still need to be um, mentally and physically be able to do that. And, and to do that, they're going to need support. So cross-skilling and redeploying uh, staff to new roles is essential uh, for us to um, uh, uh, take care of this epidemic um what else can i say um i'd say the mental side of things what i mean by that is a concentration because everybody's doing something in a different way the mental effort it takes is much greater than if you're doing your normal job on a normal day in an automatic way um so i was um quite taken by the end of my four day stretch about the mental tiredness as well as the physical tiredness I had and and that will be true of everybody whether it's the ward clerk whether it's the nurses or the porters or everybody because it's just a different entirely different world out there uh, which takes an adjustment a mental adjustment um, and also just putting on PPE and making sure you're doing it properly and taking it off properly so that you don't um, end up contaminating yourself or somebody else um, takes um, a fair bit of concentration. So my, um, my my observations this weekend is that you know it, it is it is very um, uh, uh, taxing, um, and at times I found it harrowing. One more thing I must talk about is the wards. So when I saw went to see people who had been referred who are on wards, um, patients were often in uh, cohorted in 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 bays that had doors. Um, but it's pretty lonely in there because staff only go in, understandably, when they have to do OBS or when, when there's a need, but they're deliberately not going in unless they have to. And, of course, visitors aren't allowed in. So these patients feel awful inside rooms, in bays, on their own, not really being able to communicate with anybody, no visitors, um, and feeling lousy because of their condition. And so it's a really tough time, I think, for um, patients on wards for the unfortunate ones who are admitted. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what we can do about them. And where are most of your patients coming from? Are they ambulance conveyances or are they GP referrals or walk-ins with symptoms? How do they get to you? So so how they get to the hospital in the first place um, will be through a variety of, of, of things. I suppose they're going to be GPs sending them to... to our hospital has something called a CDU, a clinical decision unit. Um, the other hospital, one of the other hospitals in this has an ED. Um, so I suppose GPs are sending them to one of those two places. Um, uh, the CDU, because we do a lot of respiratory medicine at my hospital, we are the respiratory centre. I suppose my hospital gets a lot of those direct referrals um, and then I suppose NHS 111 will direct people to where they think it's appropriate so that's where they're coming from. And you mentioned you've, across your three sites you're the respiratory centre but are all three of your hospitals taking people who have COVID-19 symptoms or are you focusing in? Yeah so the Leicester Royal Infirmary is for sure um, so that's the other, that's the um, 
uh, that's the hospital with the ED. Leicester General Hospital, um, I don't know. I mean, they do predominantly elective surgical work. Um, they have a surgical admission unit. Um, so I, I, I honestly have lost, tr- I don't know, because I don't actually um, have um, patients there. So I don't know if they're involved, but I know for sure Leicester Royal Infirmary and their, their intensive care unit, again, they've been um, ventilating in recovery and I think even in anaesthetic rooms at times um, this right. weekend. And you, you mentioned that you've expanded your capacity over the course of the weekend, almost moving to other parts of the the hospital. So what yeah. where, what was your starting capacity and where are you now in terms of numbers? So so we are uh, so we've we've um, we've outgrown our main intensive care unit. We're in theatre recovery, which has an additional seven ventilated beds. Um, Pediatric intensive care unit have transferred patients to other uh, pediatric hospitals. So now we've got their twelve beds. Um, So uh, and we started to admit into the pediatric intensive care unit yesterday. So we've got, I mean, I think, I don't know, between 20 and 30 uh, patients at the moment. But the, the problem with once patients get sick enough to need ventilating on an intensive care unit, that particular patient is most likely going to be there for two to three weeks, as opposed to a post-op cardiac surgical elective patient who's there for a day or two. So the the, the problem for the nation and for us is that we will just accumulate with very little um, opportunity to discharge patients because it takes so long. So that's why our capacity is being um, outstripped by mm. demand because of the, the length of time this illness takes to recover, if it recovers. Yeah. So is there a, a typical pathway for an admitted patient with symptoms then or does it just depend whereabouts you've caught them when they've come in? Um, so let's, I mean, I think the, the general kind of way things go is people tend to be symptomatic at home for, let's say, seven to ten days. Um, most people will get better, but then some don't. Um, they then get referred into the hospital. By and large, we find that they're hypoxic, which means that, you know their oxygen levels are low. They then get put onto oxygen in the hospital, which is really the treatment for this condition. Um, and then one of two things will happen. They get better on the ward after a few days or their symptoms become worse and then they come to us. Um, and then we will we only take patients who we feel will benefit from uh, intensive care. What I mean by that is people who have a lot of other medical problems um, who would not be able to withstand a three-week run on a ventilator we wouldn't take them to begin with. Um, so the pathway is they come in from home, they go to the ward. If they don't get better, um, and they're uh, with they're, they're, they're people that we think we can we can help, we'll bring them to the ITU. And then once they're in the ITU, they're probably going to be with us for at least two to three weeks. Mm. And do you have patients in the hospital who are there for other reasons, who have then developed the symptoms of COVID nineteen, who have to move? somehow yeah so th- there will have been um so you know th- there will be uh, patients like that i'm sure uh, because i don't um, necessarily see those patients day to day because most all of my inpatient work is focused on the intensive care unit um, i will only go and see ward patients who are being referred to itu the ones i saw this weekend were all patients 
who came to the hospital with COVID symptoms. Yeah. Um, so they weren't the group that you've just described. They didn't come in with something else and then develop it. Okay. I've mostly started asking you the questions that uh, people have suggested. But um, one of the questions is about the difference between a CPAP machine and a ventilator and whether there's a standard progression between them. If you're on one, do you then move on to another? Yeah, so a CPAP machine is something that uh, people in the community, in their homes use sometimes if they've got something called sleep apnea. Uh, But in our particular uh, context, we're using CPAP machines that um, uh, on the wards uh, and we use it for people whose oxygen levels are very low that can't be increased just by giving oxygen. So it's a mechanical way of augmenting the effect of the oxygen. Now the machines, the CPAP machines on the wards um, are not the same as ventilators. So the CPAP machines will only assist a person's spontaneous breathing. Whereas the ventilators that we use in the intensive care unit take over the entire function of a patient's breathing. So in that way, they're different. And you mentioned about oxygen levels, presumably blood oxygen levels. And one of the questions we've had is about the the finger clip that people quite often have when they go into hospital and how that measures your blood oxygen. How does that work? Oh, so so essentially that's so that's the um, uh, uh, uses infrared. It fires it at the uh, the blood vessels at the tip of your finger. Sometimes we put it on an earlobe as well, and and the way the um, the infrared bounces back um, is proportionate to the amount of oxygen that the red blood cells are carrying. Um, so it's just it's physics basically, okay. um, but that's how it works. Brilliant, thank you. Now, you've mentioned some people obviously do get better when they've been on a ventilator, but what happens when they come off of that ventilator? Presumably they have some sort of rehab for a period of time. Yes. So um, one of the, again, uh, horrible things about this condition is um, people, this is the experience around the country, is that you extubate, which means taking out the tube and taking somebody off the ventilator. And normally you only do that when you think somebody's ready uh, for that. But what we found with this condition is people seem to relapse quite quickly. Well, or, or at some point anyway, which might be 12, 24, 48 hours after taking the tube out. So with this particular condition, we're going to need to keep an eye on people in the intensive care unit for longer than we would have previously with other conditions mm. because they seem to have a sort of a rebound, uh, relapse rather, uh, but let's say that somebody does come off the ventilator, they're extubated and they stay stable. The next job will then for them to go to the ward because we do not have the capacity to keep people on the ITU for longer than they need to be at the moment. Um, and then from the ward, then presumably uh, it will depend on um, community hospital capacity or whether the patient is well enough to go home with you know community in reach into their home um i yeah i think i think they're they're the options but we don't have the luxury of of keeping people i don't think in hospital or certainly in the itu for longer periods of time we've seen quite a lot in the news very recently about different medicines that people are beginning to try to, to to treat coronavirus that have actually been developed for different conditions is there anything more you can tell us about that yeah, so there, there are a lot of medicines that are being tested at the moment. So many of our patients are going into clinical trials, and these clinical trials aim to get sort of re- to, to to answer questions about medicine, specific medicines that have shown 
some potential perhaps in China or in other European countries. Um, so, but at the moment, there's not enough evidence about any one medicine, be it hydroxychloroquine or tocilizumab that's used in rheumatoid arthritis or steroids. So there's no, there's no, not enough information to say, ah, that medicine is definitely, definitely helpful. Um, but we're, we're accumulating data through research um, all the time. Um, and, but I don't know at what point we'll have enough evidence from research to say that, yeah, that you know, medicine X is, is definitely the one to use. OK, thank you. I think I've just got one last question, actually, which is about smokers. Actually, have you how how does being a smoker impact on the ability to fight this virus? I'm assuming that has some adverse effect. Well, so the, the data from China um, suggested that people who are current smokers seem to uh, fare um, badly uh, when if they got critical illness and were ventilated. Um, but the the data from China was actually conflicting because there were there were a few studies and there was another study that showed actually that there wasn't an increased incident in smokers. Um, and also, the Chinese population genetically is different. So even though you're a smoker your genetics based on what ethnicity you are will also have a big impact. Um, so I would say that um, if, uh, you know, chronic smokers who have got, who then developed underlying lung disease like COPD or um, uh, other smoking related lung diseases are um, going to probably not be able to withstand the acute lung injury from the infection with COVID. So they're less likely to do well than, say, somebody who has no lung disease. And we know that smoking causes chronic lung disease. So in terms of the big picture, I would say that smokers, if they've developed chronic lung disease, are going to fare worse. And that's just sort of, you know, common sense, if you like, and very plausible. But if the question is, does COVID specifically attack current smokers because they're a current smoker, I don't think we have enough data on that yet. No. Thank you. Thank you for answering all those questions. That's been really interesting. And, and thank you so much for telling us about your, your weekend. You must be exhausted. <laughs> it's, been, um, it's been really interesting once again. Thank you, Sanjay. OK, thank you. Take care. To support our members and colleagues, all COVID-19 related briefings, blogs and news articles are openly available on our website, hfma.org.uk. There is no need to be a member to access these, so please tell your colleagues. We will do all that we can at the HFMA to support the NHS finance community during the pandemic. If you have any suggestions of other support that we can provide, please email us at policy at hfma.org.uk. Thank you for listening to HFMA Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with new episodes.